Hi and welcome to the Dead Ball Area Podcast. Last week I was a bit sick so there was no podcast. So this time out we're going to go back over the last of the Autumn Internationals. Also look briefly at the weekend's European Rugby Champions Cup. And also depending on time we may talk about the first two rounds of the World Rugby 7 Series. Or I might hold that back over for a separate podcast. Jumping straight into the last of the Autumn Internationals, the Wales vs South Africa game. I was a bit undecided how this game was going to go. But it actually turned out to be a strangely compelling if not good game of rugby. South Africa's defence in the first half was absolutely appalling. There's, there's no getting away from that fact. And statistically, Wales had 51% of the position and 56% of the territory in that half, which is really important when you consider how Wales scored their tries with the kicks and the charge down. And I think ultimately South Africa had lost that game by the time Parks uh, scored his first uh, try, which was Wales' second. In that context, let's talk through Wales's tries. Now, was it good attack by Wales or was it poor defence by South Africa? I think the easy option is to say that it's bad defence by South Africa and you'd be absolutely right. But from Wales' point of view, you have to accept that it was a really well-executed attacking play. Uh, defensively, allowing a kick chaser to catch the ball unchanged like that in behind your tackle line, it's just... Well, it's not really a kick chaser, but you know, to allow somebody to come in and have that free catch in behind your uh, defensive line is, is, is absolutely appalling. Um, it's just really poor defence. And what we saw there was a complete failure of the pendulum system in the South African back three. You've got half Pinny and Amos setting up really, really wide in that 15 metre channel. That means Galent has two options. He either sits back a little bit waiting for the kick or he comes up and defends in the line, but he actually came up and defended very narrowly. If he's going to come up and defend in that kind of in the line, slightly narrowed, and Kutsi has to come round the cross to shut down the last man, which he just didn't do until kind of later on in the move. So it's just a really, really poor setup straight off the bat. So either Gallant needs to sit back, watch what's happening, and flood up if they go wide, or he sits back in and he holds that holds that area. <clears throat> um, from Wales's point of view, um, it's easy to fixate on that South African defence, and it was really, really bad. But you know, ultimately. That's what rugby is about. You make the defence or you see the defence have done something wrong and then you exploit it. And I think Wales did that perfectly here. So the biggest kick is absolutely spot on. And if you watch it, he puts a tonne of spin back on that ball. So that means it holds up in the air that little bit longer. It's also easier to catch. It's like an end-over-end uh, pass that you see in rugby league or some union players make when the ball is wet. Um Amos's running line post-catch is fantastic. He doesn't panic. He just links up with his inside uh, support runners. He's just really, really patient and, and gets on the, you know, and they get on the end of it. And it's a, it's a great try. The second try from a defensive point of view is probably even worse. Uh, it's quite a big mistake from Pollard to put them under pressure like that. Um, Parks' kick was nothing special. It was just a little dribble through. And he should have been able to clear that up nice and easily. But to concede that territory in possession so you know it's just really really poor play from Pollard defensive error again is from Gallant uh, Marks is in that 5 metre channel so he doesn't need to be there he can drift a little bit wider you've got Cronje in and around the mall and kutsi has gone wide so Gallant has to drop into that pocket and shut down the option of a kick and <clears throat> even worse that's a kick from outside the 22 so that means South Africa had over 22 metres to tidy up that ball and Kind of the lack of urgency from Gallant, Konya, and Creel and shutting that down once the kick was made was just absolutely appalling. To allow Parks to collect the ball and go over almost unmolested, that's just appalling. Uh, the third try, what can you say? It's just lazy execution from Kutsia. That low kick running sideways close to the tackle line, it's always going to get lined up. 
Um, and that's just three tries from zero phases, or sort of one phase if you want to take into account the scrum and the, uh, and the line-out. Um, where in comparison, South Africa, they scored one off a zero on the counter-attack, and fair enough, that was a cracking try. But for Pollard and Krill's tries, they had to work super hard for it. And, you know, just to give up three easy tries like that, you can't expect to be in the game at the end of it. And the second half was a very different game. They came out, South Africa came out, and far more direct, far more physical. And just how do you get two such contrasting performances out of one team? Um, they really took the game to Wales up front, where we always thought they would. They made them defend, they tied them out, and they scored two really well-crafted tries. Um, standout players for South Africa was Marks again. He was a phenomenal player and had a great match, and surely like he's, he's got a career in Europe awaiting him. Um, from Wales' point of view, I thought Parks' debut was interesting. He wasn't inspirational, but he did what needed to be done. He got on the end of two chances in... In a ton of ways, he reminds me of Jamie Roberts at 12. It's very simple, very direct. Um, now, is that an issue for Wales? Is it a backward step? Perhaps. He might be a good option at 13 whilst Davis is out. Certainly, if they can play a ball player like Williams in at 12, then it's good to have somebody who can be a bit more direct in at 13. But ultimately, I think it's hard to see where he fits into the Wales squad long term. I think moving on, Wales will be glad for the win with a largely second-string side. They've given some experience to a lot of players this year. I think they'll be in a good place for it next year. Now I guess the question is, can they bring it all together enough ahead of February in the Six Nations? South Africa, who knows? So much of this is driven by politics. I think everyone can see Katsia is out of his debt for the moment and it's probably time is right for him to move on. Now whether or not somebody else can get more out of these players remains to be seen. I, I don't know. Let's leave the Autumn Internationals there and move on to the European Rugby Champions Cup. Um, I kind of struggled to get into the rugby this weekend. The most exciting game on paper, which was Sir Essence versus Clement, was cancelled. And the rugby in general wasn't that inspiring for the neutral. From a sheer rugby point of view, I thought the Lover Shell versus Ross game was good to watch, but a bit one-sided. And I thought the Exeter versus Leinster game was a very tense one. Uh, if not quite the game of the weekend, then for me the Munster versus Leicester match was an interesting game purely for the fact that Munster uh, gave a masterclass in how to strangle the life out of a team, which I think also Ulster and Leinster did to some degree. Uh, Munster, they're always going to be competitive at the breakdown. Anyone going there not expecting that has to be stupid. Um, we had attackers closing off the uh, closing the door off for the scrum half quite a lot, um, not rolling away, and that's just a second just that split second enough to get a counter ruck in or to um, get the defensive set. And what I mean by this is the tacklers will come, they'll swing around, they'll end up on the wrong side of the tackle just for that split second and then they'll roll away and that gives uh, that just gives somebody like Mahoney the chance to get in on ball or it allows um, it allows their defence to set. Uh, Garth is, you know, he seems to let a fair amount go at the breakdown, which is not unusual with him. But we did see quite a bit of uh, players off their feet. I think Munster were really intelligent at the breakdown though. They timed their interventions into the Leicester up perfectly, but they were always hovering around, which meant they were sucking in cleaners because um, Leicester couldn't risk not sending players in. That meant they had to commit resources, yet Munster actually only went in when they could actually get the ball. Ball security as the game was massive, obviously, at the ruck. 
But Leicester gave so much possession away in that wider channel, either with kicking the ball through or getting dragged into touch. And in contrast, when you looked at kind of the monster wide game, the wingers and the outside centres and the fullback, they they fought to stay alive, hold on to the ball, didn't give it up easily. And we also saw that in the Leinster versus Exeter game. Leinster went through 40 phases to score and it's just, you know, protecting the ball and, and, and honouring what it means to a game like this. Um, Mahoney was immense, uh, as you'd expect. The impact he had on the game as a captain compared to the two Youngs brothers was, you yeah, was incredible. I think Leicester struggled in the midfield. They've got a really flat, wide back line but it offers no real punch, no go forward. So the forwards have to do a lot of the carrying. This means they're really predictable in how they move the ball. They either go very, very wide or just punch it up the middle. And they don't really threaten the tackle line with the ball. And that just allows Munster to, or that just allowed Munster to kind of track ball, isolate a player and, and then attack it. Um, I was a bit surprised to not see Leicester using their wingers coming in off of blind, either outside Youngs or inside Ford, to try and just, you know, take up some of the workload from the... Uh, from the forwards and I think ultimately there was just no respect for the ball they kicked it way too easily whereas Munster competed for all of their kicks um, you have two of the best box kicking nines in the world on the pitch yet Leicester's kicks were long and to turf and not you know not on the opposition allowing them to compete um, it looked like Leicester were trying to create counter attack opportunity uh, for their quick backs um, so they were kicking long but the counter-attack formation was so narrow and so flat, it was almost impossible to get the ball back to the middle of the field. That means they weren't outflanking the monster kick chase, and that just allowed them to get up and uh, shut them down very quickly. And then I just think ultimately they let Munster um, control the game. You know, they let them build a lead too easily. They didn't seem to be, you know, fighting for their scores. That first Munster try was, you know, shocking. And ultimately, I don't think Leicester can complain. They kind of handed the game to Munster. And a team as good as Munster are just going to uh, grab that with both opportunities and make you pay for it. Um, and and, and the, end, you know, the end result is uh, a quite a significant loss away from home. Uh, let's move on to La Rochelle versus Wasps. I thought La Rochelle played some really exciting rugby. I love the way they moved the ball constantly in space and made Wasps chase the uh, chase the ball. There's an absolutely relentless pace to the game, There's just wave after wave of attacker. Now, whether it be a single runner or a group pattern, they constantly come forward, hardly ever get stopped behind the game line, as much as I can remember. And I think they found a lot of space through the middle of the Wasps' ruck and around the ruck fringe defence and... Um, I think they're a really, really good example of why French sides run everything off of the, off the nine because they don't they don't have phases planned out for three or four or five strikes. They kind of run maybe one or two pre-planned phases and then they play off nine and whatever he's seeing and that means they're heavily reliant on their two, eight, nine and 15 as decision makers and their 10 tends to act uh, as a distributing playmaker in the same way the 12 is for a lot of England or a lot of English sides at the moment. But... Um, you know, you can just see that the, the nine controls absolutely everything, and this is, you know, not not news to anyone. But I think we saw a really good example of why they do it because they don't play, you know, multiple phases planned out. They play one or two, and then they just react to what's going on in front of them. It's really, really, it's really nice rugby. Um, wasps, you know, you can't play twenty minutes with fourteen players, be that in England or in France. They're just going to make you pay for it. I think the game was pretty much gone as soon as Young's got his card, and then I think any semblance of a losing bonus point went when the Young went off. Um, if anyone ever wonders why Christian Wade isn't in the England squad, they need to watch this game. Uh, no arms tackles, defensively struggled to deal with the physicality of the uh, La Rochelle 
um, strike runners and the fact that they were leaving forwards out in the channel, in the wide channel. So, you know, he constantly struggles with the physicality and the brutality of the game. He's a wonderful attacking player. And yeah, when he goes low, he makes his tackles, but he can't deal with stuff like this. And then in contrast, you've got a player like Daly, who defensively is tearing across from the other wing and, and literally destroying attackers um, with his tackles. And he's not, the, he's not the most incredible defender, but, you know, just... The, the effort and the um, impact he has defensively is the interventions he makes are so significant compared to Wade and that is why he is in the England squad and Wade isn't uh, and ultimately you know that's what you want at that, at that level somebody who can make the difference make a game winning tackle if not um, try uh, moving on to Saracens versus Claremont. Um, I know I said it was cancelled, but actually I meant it was postponed for a day. Uh, obviously, lots of issues around sort of the safety of the ground and surrounding area. But as a game, it was kind of uh, fascinating. Neither team is really playing well. Claremont are down in ninth in the top 14, and Saracens have lost five on a bounce. Although losing games is, is slightly different to kind of what people are saying. You know, losing games in the manner they have is slightly different to kind of what people are saying about them. Uh, but for Saracens to have a tackle percentage down at 70% and 37 missed tackles, that's just not a normal performance for them. I, this is why I don't think they'll be so overly concerned because it's so abnormal. It wasn't like they lost two or three, um, they lost by two or three points as they have done to the Harlequins and, and people like that. And they, you know, they're just completely all over the place. You've got guys like uh, Farrell falling off four tackles. And, you know, ultimately they're missing Toje and Vunapola, who are two big defensive uh captains for them and then also to lose Barrett within the first two minutes um, you know Vunapolo and uh, Toje make a lot of kind of tackles around the fringe Barrett leads up the wide defence so you know you're going to miss players like that um, 23 turnovers 10 by the backs 13 by the forwards you can't give a team like Claremont those kind of uh, that kind of broken field ball and expect to still be in the game a lot of time sort of the wide players are getting isolated um, he's trying to play quick, but you know, Saracens are at their best when they impose their patterns early on and then build momentum. And the pace of Saracens' game doesn't come from them having quick outside backs, it comes from their structure rather than out and out gas. Defensively, I've never seen Saracens defend this narrow, they seem to be worried about the pick and go and getting pumped around the fringes, and that seemed to leave a lot of space wide. Uh, and then for the defence to really, really space out, which against guys like this. Um, you know, it's going to get taken apart. Clement's attacks, it's quite deep, moves the ball very, very fast to the outer edges and then uses their strike runners. And against that, you can't afford to sit back and and give them the space. Um, in the pack, I think Skelton and Cruz doesn't work. Uh, I'd like to have seen a Sequa in there just to add some mobility to counter the power of those two guys. And at the end of the day, Saracens are a team low on confidence and they went behind and they panicked. Um, Clermont, in contrast, massively up for it for whatever reason. Um, looking at their back lines tells them, you know, looking at the, the missed tackles between the two back lines is quite significant. Saracens missed 17 tackles in their backs compared to Clermont's nine. But those Saracens missed tackles spread right across the back line, whereas the seven, whereas seven of the Clermont uh, tackles were in the nine and the ten channel. And their outside backs, bar Racker, missed zero. Racker missed one, whereas Saracens' um, outside backs missed two or three. So, you know, you, you saw collectively they were just far more solid than Saracens. 
and and those broken tackles, you know, they were exploited um, to full effect. And I think it shows collectively where the two teams' mindsets were. Uh, you look at Racker's first try, for example, it's so soft, a missed tackle five metres out, no defender in behind George, which is acceptable. But if you're going to defend like that, then you've got to shut him down. You've got to bring him to ground. And Racker just strolls over. And just mentally, Saracens weren't there for the fight. And that's always going to be exploited by a team like Clermont. <clears throat> the pace in both their pack and their backs is, you know, was used to full effect. They kind of uh, they get through the close quarter stuff, get in and around the man. You've got guys like Fritz Lee who are just making outside breaks and Saracens just had no answer for that. And they gave them too much room um, to move on to. And ultimately, you can't chase down a 21-point lead against a side like Claremont. Um, so I'm going to leave it there. Uh, as, I'm, as I said, I've not been very well and I'm... I'm, I'm a little bit tired. <laughs> so if um, if you like this, then please leave a rating on iTunes. If you're watching on YouTube, then please thumbs up. And don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with the podcast and other videos. As always, please feel free to hit me up on Twitter or Facebook if you have any comments or questions or just want to chat rugby. Uh, thanks very much for listening and see you all soon.